The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 526th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, did you ever read Superman comic books? Not comic books, but I did watch all the TV shows. And did you watch the movies with Christopher Reeve? Of course. Well, I was a big fan of Superman. I read the comic books. I watched all the shows. I saw all the movies when I was a kid. And I've seen all the current movies, too. And he's just a great superhero because he's just a good guy. He doesn't seem to have a bad side to him. But that's not necessarily true of the actors that may have played him. We're going to talk about the life and afterlife of George Reeves, who played Superman on TV. He was the first actor to ever portray him on TV. And he had a really rough life, and he came to a mysterious end. It was ruled a suicide, but that may not be what happened. It could have been murder. It could have been an accident. As it is with hauntings, we're going to leave that to our listeners to decide after you listen to what we have to say. We're going to talk about how he might still be around in the afterlife, which may lead us to believe that it could either be suicide or murder. Either one of those would leave a spirit kind of at unrest. Accident, maybe not so much, unless it was such a surprise. He doesn't realize he's dead or something. And then there seems to be a Superman curse connected to portraying Superman. You guys have probably heard this thing about the Joker when it comes to Batman. Superman seems to have the same thing going on. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. I'm looking forward to bringing this to the listeners. We do want to give a bit of a trigger warning for this when it comes to suicide. We're going to talk about some of the specifics about suicide that are a little bit more detailed than what we would normally get into because we do talk about suicide a lot on this podcast. This might get into a little bit more of the details, so just be forewarned. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Aaron with an E, David, Marcy, Paul, Jewel, Megan, Evelyn, Jeff with a G and two Fs, and Kelly. We have a couple of Kellys that spell their names the same way as you. Excellent. Kelly P and Kelly C. Thank you so much for joining our Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. Baseball is a popular sport with so many fans invested in how their teams will perform and whether they will make it to the World Series. 
Back in 1911, there were only 16 Major League Baseball teams. In Wyoming, an avid fan of the game was Bighorn County Sheriff Felix Alston, whom the governor selected to be the new warden of Wyoming State Penitentiary. Alston decided to create his own baseball team with the inmates that were in his charge. The lineup consisted of a shortstop convicted of manslaughter, first baseman for rape, third baseman for grand larceny, a center fielder for forgery, second baseman for breaking and entering, and a right fielder by the name of Joseph Sang, who was convicted of first-degree murder and was facing the hangman's noose. As shocking as it may be, this team of convicts was quite impressive on the baseball diamond. The Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars had the proper uniforms and looked like professional baseball players in every sense. The team played their first game on July 18, 1911, the same date that Joseph Sang was granted a stay of execution due to his appeal to the Wyoming Supreme Court. The team of convicts played the Rollins Juniors with a win of 11-1, with Sang hitting two home runs during the game. The game itself was held on prison grounds, along with the next two games the All-Stars played against the Juniors. It was said that the outside team may have been intimidated by playing within the prison walls. The game was reported on in various newspapers with headlines like, Slayer Scores Home Runs. After three games of the Convict All-Stars beating the Rollins Juniors, the fourth and final game was played outside the prison walls. The house was packed, and again, the Convicts bested the Juniors with a final score of 15-10. to 10. This would be the final game for the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. Joseph Sang still had a stay appeal out with Governor Carey in hopes that his execution would be commuted. Despite his performance and success with the penitentiary's baseball team, along with good behavior, Sang's stay of execution was denied, and he was hanged on May 24, 1912. The sport of baseball is ingrained in much of American culture, but the thought of a penitentiary team beating and exceeding any state teams certainly is odd. from victoriaslift.com When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring. It's terrifying. The past remains with us and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 22nd, in 1959, the inaugural Daytona 500 NASCAR race was held. It was the second race of the 1959 NASCAR Grand National Series season and was the first race to be held at the Daytona International Speedway. Previous Daytona races consisted of the Daytona Beach and Road Course, where competitors would race on pavement and then the beach, returning to the pavement to finish the race. The Daytona Speedway is a racetrack which consists of a four-turn super speedway. The inaugural race boasted 41,921 spectators. 
Of the 59 cars that began the first race, 20 were convertibles. Many vehicles dropped out due to various issues. Initially, Johnny Bochamp was declared the winner, but due to the photo finish, Lee Petty was ultimately declared the winner of the first Daytona 500. Superman is a beloved comic book hero. He is all about truth and justice. Clark Kent, his alter ego, is a lovable nerd. Filling his shoes isn't easy, but George Reeves managed to do it and he did it well. But not because his own life reflected the ideal that Superman exuded. Reeves' life was complicated, and it came to an abrupt end when he was just 45 years old in 1959. The death of George Reeves is a controversial topic. The coroner's report ruled that the final results indicated that Reeves had committed suicide. Many people do not agree with that assessment. Could this have been murder? And is that mystery possibly why George Reeves' spirit seems to be at unrest? Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! The death of Superman was big news in 1992. Mainstream media covered the death of Superman in the DC comic book, and people were shocked that the impossible had happened. I know I felt that way. I could not believe it when I picked up the local newspaper, the Denver Post, and on the front of it, Superman has died. Yes. How could Superman die? He was invincible. For those of us who grew up watching reruns of the original Superman series starring George Reeves and the various Superman movies starring Christopher Reeves, we knew it was possible for Superman to die because both of those gentlemen have indeed passed away, neither one of them as old men. Both of them were forever associated with their roles as Superman, and both were cut down way too early. Comic book Superman was resurrected, but Christopher and George both moved on to whatever there is after this life. He was born George Kiefer Brewer to Donald Carl Brewer and Helen Lesher. His mother Helen had become pregnant out of wedlock, and she and Donald eloped. The marriage did not last long, ending shortly after George was born. Helen eventually moved to California and married a man named Frank Besselow, who adopted George when he was 13 years old. That marriage lasted for 15 years, but Helen grew tired of it and left Frank while George was away visiting family. When George returned home, his mother told him that Frank had committed suicide, which was not true. Lying to George seemed to come easy for her. She not only lied about the divorce, but she even lied to him about his birth date possibly to conceal that she was pregnant before marriage. Can you imagine that it would be better for you to tell your son your stepfather killed himself rather than to say, we got a divorce? It's really tough, but back in the day, people used to say all sorts of things just because of the times. George discovered acting in high school and really enjoyed performing. He also took up boxing and really enjoyed that as well but his mother forced him to quit so that his face would not be damaged. George attended Pasadena Junior College after high school, and he continued acting there. 
He then studied acting at the Pasadena Community Playhouse, and this was something that they were doing back in the day. This is where actors would go to learn. And he met Eleonora Needles there. The couple started dating and married on September 21st, 1940. Eleonora stuck mostly to theater acting, but George wanted bigger things. In 1939, he got a bit part as one of the red-headed Tarleton twins who tried for Scarlett O'Hara's hand in Gone with the Wind. And then he got the lead in a play at the Pasadena Playhouse that led to Warner Brothers offering him a contract. It was Warner Brothers that changed his name to George Reeves. And I don't know where they picked up Reeves, but they thought it would sound better than George Basolo. Old Hollywood was a hard place. Contracted actors did not have much freedom when it came to the roles they played. Reeves was very disappointed with the work offered to him by Warner Brothers. Most of the roles were in B-films and forgettable. Warner Brothers and Reeves mutually agreed to dissolve his contract, and he moved on to 20th Century Fox. Things weren't much better here, and the studio released him after a few films, so George set off as a freelancer. His main desire was to make westerns, and after a screen test with Harry Sherman, he was signed to make several Hopalong Cassidy films. Paramount Pictures then signed him to do two films a year. Making the war film, So Proudly We Hail, inspired him to join the military. World War II had started, and Reeves was drafted in 1943. Reeves was assigned to a performance crew with the U.S. Army Air Forces and spent most of his time entertaining troops and making training films. After his time in the Army was up, he returned to Hollywood and continued to have small parts in films. He traveled to New York and tried radio for a while but Hollywood always called him back. Television was starting to really take hold during this time, and the film industry was feeling threatened. Most actors would find that if they started doing television work, they could kiss their film career goodbye. And this seems to have happened for George when he was cast as Superman. The Adventures of Superman TV series launched in 1952. This would be the first TV series to feature Superman. George Reeves was hired to play Clark Kent slash Superman with Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane. Producer Robert L. Lippert, director Lee Shalom, and scriptwriter Robert Maxwell worked together to make a 58-minute black-and-white film called Superman and the Mole Men, which served as a pilot for the series. Production continued on the first season, but money ran out before anything was aired. Kellogg's had sponsored the Superman radio series, so they agreed to sponsor the TV series. Everything was back on, and the first episode dropped in September. This wasn't the pilot. That would later be split into a two-parter and became the unofficial season one finale. The cast was stunned with how popular the series became. The series ran for six seasons and produced 104 episodes and burned into the collective American memory. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. <laughs> you did that very well, Kelly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the Adventures of Superman. Daily Planet, I'd like to speak to Clark Kent, please. Yeah. Who? Oh, Gary, I'm sorry I got tied up and I couldn't meet you, but... Why? Oh, no, no, no. We're still having dinner, all right. As a matter of fact, I sent Jimmy Olsen down to pick you up. Well, that's better. Oh, sure, I'll find him. Don't worry. Oh, everything's wonderful. Got tangled up in a plane crash down in Africa, you know. But that was a long time ago. Right now, I feel better than I have for years. I was just saying I felt... Well, talk louder if that's the best you've felt for years. You saw... 
Gary. Come on, Gary. Oh, boy. There we are. Oh, you had me worried there for a while. You must have fainted. Fainted? Uh-huh. It must have been out for a half hour if you're here already. Well, I, um, happen to know of a shortcut, but there isn't much traffic. Why, Mr. Kent? Hello, Jimmy. What are you doing here? Well, this is the man you were supposed to meet. This part would bring Reeves the fame he had been seeking, and he even directed three episodes. A fondly remembered moment for George Reeves as Superman was his appearance on the I Love Lucy show. This was a crossover episode titled Lucy and Superman, and it aired on January 14, 1957. All right, children, I got a wonderful surprise for you. Now you all line up there and close your eyes. You're going to get your wish, young man. Just close your eyes right there, honey. Close your eyes. Don't look now. And when I tell you to look, you look. You're going to see your favorite television star, Look, Superman! How are you? Happy birthday, little Ricky. Which one of you is Ricky? That's it, right there. Happy birthday. How are you, Dad? Any of you fellas want to wrestle? Yeah! <laughs> How do you do? My name is Superman. Oh, boy, am I glad to see you. Tell me, when you're flying around, do you have cape trouble? No, but then I've had a lot more flying time than you have. Oh. You see, why don't you do it? Can you teach me to fly? <laughs> <laughs> of all the crazy things that you've done in the 15 years that we've been married, this has been you mean to say that you've been married to her for 15 years? Yeah, 15 years. And they call me Superman. <laughs> Reeves adapted his character to the comedic setting perfectly. And yet... Reeves had real fears about what playing the character would do to his career. The show was catered to a younger audience, making leading man roles difficult to get. On top of that, the filming schedule was grueling, and the stars were locked into the series, having to be available on a 30-day notice of a new season starting. This made it impossible to take any parts if they were offered. Reeves referred to his Superman costume as a monkey suit, and he was poorly paid only receiving a small raise after threatening to leave after three seasons. A lot of people think, oh, you get on TV and you have this steady paycheck. Well, they had a steady paycheck, but it wasn't a big one at all. And to keep in mind, they only got paid during the season. So when it was off season, you needed to find another acting job. But you couldn't get another acting job because you had to be on call for this one within a 30-day notice. And most movies, I don't know about back then, but I know nowadays, three, four months filming. And so you can't just take off and go make a movie. Despite not being crazy about being Superman, George tried his best to be a good role model and he gave up smoking because, you know, he knew the kids were watching him. So he's like, well, I'm going to try to be a good guy. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. 
other areas of George's life didn't contribute to a squeaky clean image. His love life was a mess and would lead to his ultimate demise and the reason why the Superman series would end in 1959. Its star would be dead. We hadn't mentioned this yet, but his marriage to Eleonora had ended in divorce in 1950. A little bit before he gets the Superman part, he and Eleonora had divorced each other. They were married for about 10 years. To lead us into the mysterious and tragic circumstances of his death, we first need to look back on the Hollywood of the 1950s. This time in Hollywood was post-World War II, and the film industry was in decline. The studio contract system was on the verge of coming to an end as independent production started gaining strength. Television had become a source of major competition. Families wanted to stay at home and watch shows together rather than head out to the movies. There were five major Hollywood studios, MGM, Paramount, Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO, and the 1950s proved to be a difficult period as societal pressure forced them to change. One didn't make it through, RKO, and others were sold or changed management. This was all behind the scenes. In front of the scenes were the actors and the studios were forever having to clean up the wreckage left behind by many of their top stars. During Hollywood's contract days, it was a practice of all studios to have men that they called fixers. Kelly, we could all use a fixer in our lives here and there. You get in a little bit of trouble, you get that parking ticket, or maybe have a little bit too much to drink at the bar. <laughs> You'd have a little fixer to fix things for you. Reminds me of movies where the cleanup crew comes in after the murder takes place. Yeah. Like Pulp Fiction or something. Yeah, exactly. Come in, <laughs> roll up the bodies in the carpet and take them out. Fixers took care of the scandals and other issues that contract players found themselves involved with. Fixers helped to beat criminal charges and hide affairs and such. They kept the press quiet on certain matters. Eddie Mannix was MGM Studios' fixer. He was a very powerful man in Hollywood. Mannix was an Irish Catholic guy from New Jersey. One of his early jobs was working as a bouncer at Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey, and then he got involved with movie production and was hired by MGM Studios. By 1924, he was the main muscle for the studio, making sure that it kept its good public image. From 1924 to 1962, that's a heck of a run. Sure is. He covered up affairs, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, abortions, rapes, addictions, and maybe even murder. Mannix and his crew were always on the scene of a crime involving an MGM star before the police. So it was like, if you got yourself in trouble... You didn't call the cops. You didn't call your lawyer. You called Mannix. You called Eddie. <laughs> Come help me. Mannix was a tough guy and not someone to mess around with. So messing around with his wife wouldn't be a good idea. Uh-oh. Tony Lanier was an actress and dancer who was one of the Ziegfeld Follies showgirls and famously known for her beautiful long legs. She was Eddie Mannix's second wife. The couple had married in 1951. The marriage was volatile, and both Eddie and Tony had affairs. Tony's most notorious affair was with George Reeves. She was eight years older than him, and it apparently started before he was cast to play Superman. The affair was fairly public, and Eddie seemed to not care as he was carrying on his own affair. George stayed in the relationship with Tony for several years, but finally broke it off in 1958 after meeting socialite Lenore Lamont in New York. Tony was devastated and would not leave George alone. She took to stalking him and sitting outside his home and crying. This didn't keep George from asking Lenore to marry him. 
They were to be married in June of 1959, but that never happened because George died from a fatal gunshot on June 16th of that year. People claimed that Lenore was bad for George. George Reeves had bought a home on Benedict Canyon Drive. I think a lot of people are very familiar with that road. Indeed. North of Sunset Boulevard in the Beverly Hills area. He wasn't flush with cash, so many people believe that Tony Mannix either helped him with a down payment or bought the house for him. The house cost around $12,000 and was a split-level ranch house with George's bedroom on the second floor above the living room. It was not a very big house. I think it had another like guest room that was over the garage. And then you had downstairs like a living room, dining room, kitchen. The circumstances as to what happened on the evening of the 15th going into the early morning hours of the 16th are murky. Most narratives agree that Reeves had a few friends at his home. His fiancée, Lenore Lamont, neighbor Carol Von Ronkel, William Bliss, or he's also called Bill Bliss, and the writer Richard Condon. Condon and Von Ronkel were believed to be having an affair, and Condon was staying as a guest at George's house. Lenore and George arrived home around 11 p.m. after having dinner and drinks. The drinking continued at home, and Lenore was fighting with George. He seemed to be getting cold feet about marrying her. She wasn't happy about the prospect of heading back to New York. She was 36 and feeling the pressure to get married and start a family. Reeves headed up to bed alone at midnight. Around 1 a.m., he came back downstairs, probably to tell everybody to shut up. He hung out for a while, but was very agitated and apologized to Condon about his foul mood, and then he returned to his bedroom. Lamont then announced, he is going to shoot himself. The group could hear a drawer being opened, and Lamont said, he's getting the gun out now and he's going to shoot himself. Shortly thereafter, a shot rang out, and Bliss ran upstairs to find Reeves naked on the bed and dead with a bullet wound to his head. The group waited 45 minutes before calling the police, which has caused there to be suspicions as to what was going on during that time. Although the fact that they were all drunk probably had something to do with it. Yeah, so I don't know if it was just because they were drunk and not thinking, because, Kelly, I mean, you can get drunk at your house if you want to. I don't think the police are going to arrest you for getting drunk at your own house. The police and most people believe that Reeves committed suicide. He had been drinking and was depressed with the state of his life and his acting prospects. He could not shake the role of Superman, and all independent projects he tried to start never got off the ground because he could not find funding. George was found lying naked, face up on his bed with a gunshot wound to his head. His feet were on the floor, and the gun was between them. The shell casing was underneath his body. The bullet was in the ceiling to the left of his head. The path indicated that Reeves probably leaned his head down towards the gun. What I'd read about that is that that's typically what people do when they're going to shoot themselves in the head. The police spent a week investigating. Lenore broke the evidence seal on the house and took $4,000 in traveler's checks and took off to New York, never to return. So that left the scene contaminated. Much of the investigation was botched. The body was washed before the autopsy was conducted. I'm just like, what? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. The body was also not checked for gunpowder burns and the hands were never tested for gunpowder. There was no explanation for several bruises found on Reeves' face and chest. Multiple bullet holes were found in the house, particularly the floor of the master bedroom. I believe there were two of them. There was a story that Lenore once shot a gun in the house. 
George may have done the same. And sometimes people who are going to shoot themselves fire a practice shot a little while before. This is another thing that they put out there. It's either just to practice or to hear what it sounds like. I'm not sure, but they thought that perhaps that's why there were these extra bullet holes in the house. Despite the official ruling of suicide, many people are not satisfied with that conclusion. George was dissatisfied, but was he suicidal? He left behind no note. And it's unusual for someone to kill themselves when they are naked. You really don't want to be found in that state? No. And you know if you are naked when you shoot yourself, you're going to be seen that way. He never said anything about wanting to die. Why would he come downstairs and complain about noise and then just go upstairs and shoot himself? And let's not forget about Tony, who was stalking George and very upset. She was married to the fixer. Had Eddie fixed his wife's problem? Was he jealous that she was so hung up on George? Did she hire someone herself because she had been rejected? After all, the home George died in was bought for him by Tony. The Guardian reported in 2006, years later, another cast member, Phyllis Coates, who played Lois Lane, told Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger, authors of Hollywood Kryptonite, an often speculative examination of the case, that she had received a very disturbing phone call at 4.30 a.m. on the morning of Reeves' death. It came from Tony Mannix, beside herself with anxiety. She was hyperventilating and ranting, recalled Coates. She said, The boy is dead. He's been murdered. One story claims that on her deathbed, Tony confessed to a priest that she had had George killed, although that seems like it would have been hard with a house full of witnesses. Yeah, so very strange. You call the woman who's playing Lois Lane on Superman to tell her that George Reeves is dead and he was murdered, especially at that time of the morning, because he would have just been discovered that way. So for her to have gotten word of that that quickly and then to say he's been murdered, that's the thing that makes you go, what? A little bizarre. Yeah, why would that be the first thing that you would say is that he had been murdered? Somebody else either had to have said that to her. Maybe she had inside knowledge. I don't know, but it's very peculiar. And then, of course, it's just a story that she confessed to a priest that she had him killed, but she would have known people. Eddie definitely would have known people. It's something that could have gotten done. Although, of course, you do have three other people that are in the house. You think they would have seen or heard something. It's not like a shot came through a window. So Lenore has also been looked at as a suspect. Her account of the evening was full of holes, and some claim that she might have witnessed what happened or shot George herself. There may have been a fight with the gun involved, and either it could have been murder or perhaps it could have accidentally gone off. You've got drunk people, heightened emotions, and a loaded gun involved. It would be easy for it to perhaps accidentally go off, get dropped, who knows? She also claimed that she never made the comments that seemed to detail Reeves's play-by-play suicide. So that part that we were saying that she said, oh, he's going upstairs to shoot himself. They hear the drawer open. He's going to shoot himself with the gun. She said that never happened. Stories also claim that death threats had been received by George for months before his death. There's also the issue with the bullet casing being under Reeves's body. A lot of people say, how is that possible if he had shot himself? There are people who are more expert at guns and bullets and shooting it and where these casings go flying. And most of them will tell you that bullet casings can go flying all over the place. And perhaps the casing fell onto the bed before his body slumped over. You know, all this stuff is happening with seconds. 
gun fires. Casing goes flying as his body's falling over. So it is possible, especially if you've got the gun, you know, pointed up towards your head, that the casing would have gone flying in that direction. And so he ended up on top of it because the gun between his feet does sound like where it would land. Sure. If you kind of slumped over. We'll probably never know what happened for certain. Reeves was buried at Mountain View Cemetery and Mausoleum in Altadena, California. George's soul appears to be at unrest and still hanging out at his Benedict Canyon home. George's full-body apparition has been seen in the home, and sometimes it is wearing his Superman costume and points at the ceiling. I find it interesting that his spirit, who didn't like the costume, thought it was a monkey suit, would want to show up in it in the afterlife. Strange lights appear in the home, and the distant echo of a gunshot is heard. The smell of gunpowder seems to hang in the air. Police officers were once called out by neighbors when they claimed they heard screaming and gunshots. Neighbors claimed to see the apparition on the front lawn at times. The house was used as a set in the 1980s, and many of the cast and crew claimed to see the ghost for themselves when in the house. Tony had inherited the house, and she struggled for years to keep the place rented. One set of renters claimed that one evening while they were hosting a party, the room that had formerly been George's bedroom had been torn apart. The sheets were stripped from the bed and clothes were everywhere. When they returned downstairs, all the drinks had been moved to the kitchen. On another occasion, the bed in the bedroom was moved across the floor. The couple's dog would bark at something unseen and slink away. Noises continued to come from the bedroom and the couple finally moved out. A newlywed couple was thrilled to see that the house was for rent for a very reasonable price. If it's reasonable, you better check it out. (laughs) Shortly after they moved in, they were awakened by the sound of a gunshot. A couple days later, the smell of gunpowder hung in the air. These two things happened enough over the next couple of weeks that the couple broke their lease and left. Another couple moved out the same day they moved in after encountering the ghost of Reeves. And still another couple saw the ghost of Reeves in the nude, and he was groaning. So you could see why people wouldn't really want to hang out at the house. Indeed. And then there's this idea of a Superman curse. And this refers to people saying that misfortune seemed to befall anybody who portrayed Superman or was connected to the movies and that kind of thing. The curse is frequently associated with George Reeves. And then obviously, of course, Christopher Reeve. And I already find it very odd that they both have a very similar last name. Minus the S on the end. So it's like, wow, how do you get two guys to play the same character that basically have the same last name? And I'm sure most of our listeners recall that Christopher Reeve had this horseback riding accident back in 1995. Yeah, I had a similar one going over the head of my horse going over jumps. Now, of course, a lot of skeptics will say, well, you have this high number of people who have played different parts and different people who have played the character of Superman and Clark Kent over the years. You're going to have enough people involved that you're going to have these things that happen. And if you just focus on that, well, of course, it's going to look like there's something fishy going on here. So you have Kirk Allen. He played Superman in two low-budget 1940s serials, but failed to find any work afterward because he was typecast. As a result, he was relegated to voice roles, commercials, and some other smaller screen roles. He later appeared as Lois Lane's father in the 1978 Superman film. Allen had Alzheimer's disease later in his life and died in 1999 at the age of 88. Was that a curse? Was it just natural aging? He at least did have a long life. Lee Quigley. He played the infant Superman in the 1978 film. He came from an unstable home and suffered schoolyard bullying. 
He died in 1991 at age 14 from inhalant abuse. So that's very unfortunate. Of course, we talked about what happened here with George Reeves. Christopher Reeve played Superman in all of the movies that uh, the first one was in 1978. You had Superman 2 in 1980, Superman 3 in 1983, and Superman 4 in 1987. He also had to deal with a lot of typecasting when it came to that role and found it difficult to get other roles later. He was paralyzed from the neck down after being thrown from his horse in a cross-country equestrian riding event on May 27, 1995. And he was not only a quadriplegic, but he also needed to have a ventilator help him to breathe. He could not really breathe on his own. He died on October 10th, 2004, 15 days after his 52nd birthday. No official autopsy was performed, but his wife and doctor believed that he had some kind of an adverse reaction to a drug. And most people say that he died of a heart attack. Marlon Brando, he played Jor-El in the 1978 film, which was Superman's father. He cited for the misfortune he suffered in his private life, such as his son Christian's shooting of his half-sister Cheyenne's boyfriend in 1990, and then he was imprisoned for five years. Then his daughter committed suicide in 1995. He died in July 2004, 80 years old, three months before his Superman co-star Christopher Reeve. Margot Kidder, she played Superman's love interest Lois Lane in the Superman movies. She had bipolar disorder. In April 1996, she went missing for several days and was found by police in a paranoid, delusional state. She dismissed the notion of a curse, remarking in a 2002 interview, That is all newspaper-created rubbish. The idea cracks me up. What about the luck of Superman? When my car crashed this August, if I hadn't hit a telegraph pole after rolling three times, I would have dropped down a 50-foot ravine. Why don't people focus on that? That would be a good thing to focus on. Absolutely. She died in 2018 in Montana. A coroner ruled her death a suicide, stating that she had died as a result of a self-inflicted drug and alcohol overdose. There was Richard Pryor. He had had a drug addiction for a while, which led to a near-fatal suicide attempt. He starred as Gus Gorman in Superman 3. Three years later, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and he died of a heart attack in 2005 at the age of 65. Dana Reeve was the wife of Christopher Reeve. Despite being a non-smoker, she died of lung cancer in 2006 at the age of 44. And then there's Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. They were the creators of Superman in the comic books. They sold the rights to their creation to DC Comics for a relatively small amount of money, in contrast to the amount of money the character had generated over the decades. They tried for years to get their own share, but they never did get any of that. By the 1950s, Schuster's eyesight had worsened to the point where it prevented him from drawing and he worked as a delivery man in order to earn a living. And then get a load of this. Jerry Robinson claimed that Schuster had delivered a package to the D.C. building embarrassing the employees. He was summoned to the CEO, given 100 bucks, and told to buy a new coat and find another job. Oh, my goodness. And he created Superman. Wow. By 1976, Schuster was almost blind and living in a California nursing home. In 1975, Siegel launched a publicity campaign in which Schuster participated, protesting DC Comics' treatment of him and Schuster. There was a lot of negative publicity over that. So DC's parent company, Warren Communications, reinstated the byline, which had been dropped more than 30 years earlier, and granted the pair a lifetime pension of $20,000 a year, plus health benefits. So at least they finally got something. Yeah. Siegel died in 1996 and Schuster in 1992. So I don't know. Do you guys think there was a curse involved? I'm not sure of that. I personally think that George Reeves probably did kill himself. But uh, yeah, there's still some mystery to that. What do you think, Kelly? 
I kind of lean that way as well. Did George Reeves commit suicide or was he murdered? Has this unsolved mystery led to his spirit being at unrest? Does George still haunt his home? That is for you to decide. What do you guys think? Let us know. You could send us an email at historyghostbump at gmail.com or let us know on any of our other various social media. And you could check out the website at historyghostbump.com. Want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.